when we sing Amazing Grace and we don't hear that third part where um, we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the stars, but actually what we sang this morning was the original way that John Newton wrote the song and that verse that we're so accustomed to was added later. So it does seem strange, but that is in fact how he originally penned it. So I'm excited for that Amazing Grace. I'm thankful for that Amazing Grace and I pray today that you've experienced that in your life and if you haven't, that today would be that day for you in fact so this morning we are going to be in the book of exodus so i'll invite you to find your place in exodus chapter 32 but before we begin the message there as is our custom we will spend a few moments uh in silent prayer to the lord confessing our sins and i would also ask you this morning as i know many of you have been already to remember continue to remember kim anderson uh in your prayers he's recovering well but he had a pretty rough night Uh, Two nights ago, the medicine had a bad reaction with him. They've got that figured out, and he's doing much better. And uh, remember Lee and Carol Hibbard's son, Andy, this morning, too, as he was taken to the hospital. So we are going to look at James 5.16 for our verse of confession. Uh, After I read this, we'll spend a few moments in silent prayer to the Lord, and then I'll lead us together corporately. So James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins. Now, certainly we confess to the Lord Jesus, but also listen to this. Confess your sins one to another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we do have a great high priest who has rent the veil and allowed us access to God as believers, and we can approach the throne of grace boldly. And so, Lord, we come this morning uh, laying our sins at your feet, asking you to restore fellowship as believers if we have transgressed and, and brought that upon ourselves. And for those here today, Lord, and watching online that don't know you, it's our prayer that the Spirit would convict, that your word would go forth with power, and the eyes would be opened and hearts would be changed. Lord, help us today to be attentive. Help us, Lord, to focus on what this message means to each and every one of us as individuals, not concerned with what it might mean for our neighbor, but what it means for us. And Lord, help us through the Spirit to make application of that uh, and to go out into the world and live differently and set apart lives as you've called us to do. Thank you, Lord, for this chance to worship together. We pray that in everything we do here today, you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, as I said, we will be in the Old Testament book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. And the title of my message is kind of a play on words. It's certainly not a phrase I don't think that kids today use any longer, but it was something that perhaps we said at least when I was a kid many moons ago, and that is, don't have a cow. So you might have, and Sam even used the Chicago Bulls logo on there if you're a basketball fan. I think that's the Chicago Bulls uh, figure there. So hopefully, hopefully Chicago Bulls don't come after us for patent infringement. But don't have a cow. You'll see kind of why I use that title uh, as we get into the text today. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able, one last time to stand with us as we read and reverence God's Word together. Exodus chapter 32, we're only going to read uh, the first six verses this morning of our text so the bible says there when the people saw that moses delayed to come down from the mountain the people gathered themselves together to aaron and said to him up make us gods who shall go before us as for this moses the man who brought us up out of the land of egypt we do not know what has become of him 
So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Father, we come to you again, Lord, asking you to bless your word this morning. May in everything that we say and do, you have the preeminence. Lord, may your spirit move, convict, draw, encourage whatever is needed in this room and online today. For your glory alone, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a story uh, of a warlord in Japan who was a very powerful man and, and ruled over most of that province in that time. His name was Hideyoshi. And as I said, when he ruled in the 1500s, he commissioned uh, a temple to be built and a shrine within it, this elaborate shrine uh, to, to Buddha be put inside of it. And rumor and story says that it took thousands of men almost five years to construct this temple. And shortly after it was finished, there was a major earthquake in Japan and the roof collapsed, destroying the temple. And Hideyoshi in his anger is said to have drawn his, bro his bow and shot an arrow into the rubble where the statue was. And he cried out these words, I put you here at great expense and you can't even look after your own temple. Why do I share that story with you this morning? In that tale, I see an echo of what the psalmist says when he talks about the fact that idols are made, they're fashioned, they have eyes but cannot see, they have ears that cannot hear, they have hands that do not touch, they have feet that cannot walk. And he finally concludes in that portion of the Psalms concerning idols, he says this, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. When we talk about idolatry in churches today, especially in America, a lot of people tune out because we've relegated idol worship to some third world country where a guy in his hut has set up some kind of small wooden statue or stone carving uh, and bows down several times a day to it. And while that is idolatry, idolatry goes much deeper. It permeates the being of every one of us to some degree. And it infests churches in America today. And so I want us to think about idolatry not just in the sense of some external worship uh, of a deity that we have carved with our hands but what the Bible describes idolatry to truly be. The Heidelberg Catechism, which a lot of you may not be familiar with what catechisms are, uh, they're basically small statements of faith, belief we might say uh, that they are these confessions, if you will, uh, that, that help us to capture the idea of certain elements of the faith. And, and there are many of those. The Heidelberg Catechism is one. And it says this about idolatry. Idolatry is having or inventing Something in which we put our trust instead of or addition to the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. When we think about idolatry in that light, 
it takes on a much deeper meaning than just worshiping some statue in a hut in a third world country. Something we put our trust in instead of or addition to the only true God. Think about that definition. And let's look at our text today and kind of get an idea if you're not familiar with it, what was going on. So Moses had went to Mount Sinai. He had received the law, specifically the Ten Commandments from God. And then he returns. He shares with Israel what he and God had spoken about. And, and what is their response to this initial giving of the law that Moses now communicates to them? How did they respond? I want you to see this. In Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8, this is Israel's response to Moses returning from Mount Sinai the first time with the law, presenting it to God along with the covenant. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, after hearing these laws in this covenant, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw, the ESV uses the word threw, I'm not crazy about that translation, I think sprinkled is much better. He sprinkled the blood on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God gives the law to Moses, He gives it in turn to the nation of Israel, and they gladly on the surface receive it and said, Yes, wonderful We are all in on this thing, God. 100%, we will be obedient. So then what happens? Moses leaves again. He returns to be with the Lord. And he is getting instruction from the Lord. He's received the law. Now he's going to get some instructions on something very specific. And I think that this is really critical for us to understand when we look at Exodus 32. What is Moses went back to Mount Sinai the second time to receive from the Lord? You may not know the answer. I'm going to tell you what he went to receive. He went to receive instruction on how to build the tabernacle. He went to receive instruction about the priesthood, the vestments and the different things that were necessary for the the high priest and the priest that would follow. And he also went to receive instruction on sacrifices. So in a nutshell, Moses had returned to receive instruction on how Israel was to worship their God. At the tabernacle, through the high priest, with the sacrificial system, was how Old Testament worship was to be done before God. Moses has gone to receive the instruction on how to worship. And the impatience of the people leads them to create a system of worship for themselves. Don't forget that. Think about the idolatry that we talked about and think about what Moses is doing and think about what the people are doing in his absence. Okay? So back at the camp, it's been 40 days. The people have grown impatient. They start to murmur. They start to complain. And they decide to take matters into their own hands. And look what they ask Aaron to do. They don't know where Moses has went. He's gone. We don't know. So we want you, Aaron, to make us gods. Notice lowercase g, plural, who go before us. So what are are they basically asking Aaron to do there? They are asking him to make fashion gods for them to worship 
But even more specifically than that, they want God's to lead them to go before us, literally to provide protection, because they're tired of being in the wilderness and they want to make some progress here. They want to be led out of this place of discomfort and uncertainty into the land that they would be promised. And so we see then that Aaron makes a golden calf, or some translations say a molten calf. Why would Israel... Or why would Aaron turn and make that type of image? I believe it's because of where they had been for centuries and what had permeated their hearts during all those years in bondage in Egypt. Bovine deities were very numerous and very common in Egypt. There were several that were worshipped for different reasons. And so I believe that when the people ask for gods and Aaron decides to create one, it was natural for him to choose this calf, this cow, because it was familiar to what they had experienced all those years in bondage. Even though God had delivered them, even though God had led them out of Egypt, He had provided, He had shown Himself faithful and powerful, more powerful than Egypt and any of their gods, there was still something in their hearts that turned them back to the familiar sinful ways of their past. Because in our hearts, we are all prone to idolatry. We're all prone to idolatry. There was a pastor, many of you will know the name, certainly many of you know the name Charles Stanley. He has a son named Andy Stanley, who is also a pastor. Day and night difference between the two. But Andy Stanley raised some eyebrows several times. But the last time, I believe the last time that he did so, was when he talked about the fact that believers should detach the Old Testament from the New. That we really don't need to spend much, if any, time in the Old Testament because it's no longer relevant uh, to believers today. What a shame uh, that, that someone, a pastor especially, would make a statement such as that or that we would believe that there is nothing relevant to us in the Word of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. There is so much for us in all of Scripture. Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God, and he's not talking about the New Testament when he says that. We find it in the New Testament, but he's referring to the Old. And so I hope that we can always understand that all 66 books are inspired and authoritative. All are beneficial to us. And so we don't detach the Old Testament from what we talk about. Matter of fact, Paul does write this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6, 7, and 11. He says, now, these things, what things? Well, he names some specifics, but the things that occurred in the past, the things that we read about in the accounts in the Old Testament. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. Now, what is Paul going to quote here? Look at it. We just read it a few minutes ago. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What story is he account, uh, referencing here? Exodus 32, the golden calf. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for what reason? Our instruction on whom the end of the ages 
has come. So we can draw very, very precise application and conclusions from the stories, whether it's from the New Testament or the Old Testament. Don't ever think that it's, it's not relevant to you today. Okay? So I want to look at three things real quick in our text today that I believe we can make application to ourselves. Number one is that we fall into sin when we disobey. Duh. Right? We fall into sin when we disobey. The idea of sin today is another one of those words that, especially outside of the church, is either completely rejected altogether or it has been redefined to make it more palatable to people. And even churches do that today. It's no longer sin. It's habits. It's addictions. It's mistakes. Right? And so we try to lower the effect of that word by replacing it with terminology that removes the fact that we are accountable to someone, specifically as Pastor Michael talked about uh, this morning in our Sunday school lesson. We are accountable to a holy God, both as believer and unbeliever. And so we talk about sin. The Scriptures talk about sin. Hamartia, to miss the mark. What mark? God sets a perfect standard for everyone, and that is the law. God is holy. The law is holy. No human being can keep the law, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the standard that God gives. The law was never communicated to us to be a method of salvation. It shows us the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the chasm that cannot be crossed by any human being. We cannot ever do enough, be good enough, work our way to God. He had to send His Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He had to provide a substitute. He had to provide a sacrifice for us. He became sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That was the way that God could provide access for sinful human beings that all fall short, that all sin, that all break the law, and that all are guilty of. Sin is disobedience. Israel receives the Ten Commandments. We can be very tough. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. We can be very tough and very harsh with Israel sometimes because we look at their mistakes and we think, good grief, didn't it? Couldn't, couldn't they ever figure this out? They keep doing the same thing over and over again. And you think they saw all these miracles, they saw God's hand, and yet they continue to uh, make the same mistakes. And so we, we, we kind of judge them harshly. But aren't we the same way? Don't we do the same thing? In different ways, certainly. But we are all prone to wander. We are all prone to do things our own way. We're all prone to disobedience. That is why we have to keep watch over our hearts and we have to be grounded in the Scriptures and walking in the Spirit and be in the fellowship of the church. I believe that so many today think that church is optional and they excuse that because they say, well, I have a personal relationship with God and I can do this at home. My friends, I understand that COVID has made that a reality for some of you. And that's not my point here. But my point is when you just out of laziness or you're not in the, in the habit anymore, you get out of the mood, you need the church. We need the church. It is, a, it is a stabilizing factor in our lives to have fellow believers around us that can encourage us, that can keep us walking in the right way, that we can study the Word of God and pray together. We need that. God did not create us to be isolated. He created us to commune with Him in fellowship of the local church. This isn't a man-made scheme. The local church is God's plan. For believers, the ecclesia is to gather together a called-out assembly. 
We need that. And yet Israel gets the Ten Commandments. We know these, or at least I believe we, we know them fairly well. And what are the first two that God gives? Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And the very next verse, at least the beginning of it, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol. Now look at, again, our text today. And look at what it says in verse 4. Look how Aaron responds. He fashions his golden calf, and they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Is that an absurd statement? Did the golden calf that was just created there with, by Aaron's hand, was that what led Israel out of Egypt? Of course not. And they knew that. And so when we, when we look at this, and I want you to see something else, look at verse 5. It says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. So he builds this altar before this golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord. Now, look in your Scriptures or even on the screen up there. I hope, I hope that you bring your Bible with you. I encourage you to do that even though we have the words on the screen. I, I encourage you to bring a Bible to church with you in Bible study. But look at the word Lord in verse 5. You'll notice that it is all capital letters, correct? Regardless of translation, every translation is going to have that the same way. Some may specifically, I think the, the CSB may say the word, which is Yahweh. It's God's covenant name, right? So he's saying, isn't this, isn't this again strange? Aaron saw this, the response of the people and the calf that he had built, and he builds an altar, and he says, tomorrow we're going to make a feast to Yahweh. You see how strange this sounds? The people are excited. This is the God that brought the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And Aaron says, Yes, we're going to have a feast tomorrow to Yahweh. What on earth is going on? Confusion? Certainly. Sin always leads to confusion. Absolutely. And God is not the author of that. But I believe that there are two possibilities, and perhaps both are correct, that's going on in this text that are going on in these verses with the people. The word that they use for the plural there, gods, is Elohim. And we find that even in the beginning of Scripture in Genesis. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. We know that the one true God is triune in nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Correct? You with me so far? Okay. I believe, number one, they could be saying, give us more gods as would have been customary in Egypt. They had a plethora of gods. Give us other gods to worship, but we don't want to discard Yahweh. We just want to add Him to the mix. We, we can, where there's room for Him too. We don't want to just push Him away. He's been beneficial to us and helpful. But we need more gods because Moses is gone and we don't know if he's coming back and we don't know if... He and God just went off and did their own thing. So give us some gods, but we'll still keep Yahweh in the mix. That's, that's what we might call syncretism, 
You see that in, in the book of Colossians. That was one of the issues that Paul is dealing with in Colossae, is syncretism, where there is this mixture of all these different religions and all these different things coming together in this mismesh uh, of religion. Okay? I believe that's one possibility. But I also believe that we can see in our text today that they wanted, since Moses had left and they hadn't been able to look upon God, they wanted to bring God down to their level. They wanted to create Yahweh or a God in an image that they were able to touch and see and keep an eye on. We want to make sure that He doesn't leave us or wander away this time. So let's create an image and we can call it Yahweh and we'll worship this image as Yahweh and we can keep Him right in front of us at all times. We can keep Him within arm's reach. That's comfortable for us to do that. They humanize Him in a sense. They lower Him down to their standards. And I think both of those are what going, is what's going on there. And both of those, church, violate those first two commandments that God gave to them. They had agreed to obey, and the blood that, Aaron, that, Aaron, or that Moses had sprinkled has not even dried yet. And they're already disobeying God. They're already breaking the covenant with Him. Because Israel is no different than we are. Israel is no different than we are. God makes a covenant. Israel agrees to abide by it. God is faithful. Israel is not. God is faithful all the time. That's a good place for an amen. God is faithful all the time. Israel is not. A few Wednesday nights ago, we talked about indwelling sins, besetting sins. From the book of Hebrews, we talked about that in other places. And here is the problem. Here is the problem that I've seen most believers do, and at times I've done it myself. We look at sin in our lives. We see things in our life that we would like to be delivered from. That we would like to be set free from. That's a good thing. Amen? We want to be set free. God not only forgives the penalty of sin, He breaks the power of sin. We have the ability through the Spirit of God, through His Word, to obey. Correct? But often we don't. And in those times when we fall short and sin against God... We start to focus on the external, the act that we've done, the sin of commission, as we talked about in Sunday school. We think about those things specifically, and we start to make a deal with God. I promise I'm going to do better. God, you can count on it. I will do better this time. This is the last time, God. I'm so sick of this thing. I'm done with it. Not doing it anymore. And you can apply that to any sin that you might fall into in your life. The, one of the taboo topics in churches is the subject of pornography. And nobody wants to talk about it. it's the elephant in the room, but the reality is statistics all over the place show that pornography use between believers and unbelievers is practically identical and that almost 70% of men have viewed it in the last 30 days, Christian and non-Christian. And it's about 40% for women. So in a room this size, if we think that nobody is struggling with that sin, we are fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. And, and yet the, the shame and the guilt 
that goes with that specific sexual sin is such that people don't want to expose it. They're struggling with it, but they don't want to tell anybody because they're ashamed, because they feel guilty. And so they try to deal with it on their own. They try to make promises with God. They, they're angry at themselves. It's a constant up and down where they feel grieved over their sin, but yet the attraction of it pulls them back into it. And they're fighting this battle, and they've tried the, the blockers on their phones and the passwords and all the things, and that works for a season, but ultimately, if you want to sin, you'll find a way. Right? And so when we think about that, and I'm just using that as one specific example, it might be anger, it might be gluttony, which is another one Baptists don't like to talk about. But the reality is that that might be the sin that you struggle with. But whatever it is on those levels, we look at it externally and we make promises with God that we're going to do better and that we're going to clean up our lives. And you count on it, God, that'll be the last time that I do it. And then we do it again and then more guilt and shame comes because we feel like we made a promise and we didn't keep it. Right? Why do I bring all that up? Because our problem is the same as Israel's. And the problem, folks, is not with the smartphone or the computer. It's not with your spouse. It's not with the ref- what's in the refrigerator. Do you know what the problem is? The heart. The problem is the heart. We struggle with sin because sin is still in our hearts. It still is in the flesh. In Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is being martyred, or before he will be martyred, and he's preaching to those that are listening, the Apostle Paul being one of those standing by. And he's recounting many of these events. Listen to what he says of this very story in Exodus 32, in Acts 7, verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey Him. Who? Yahweh. They refused to obey Him. So that's where it started. There was a refusal to be obedient. Then what happened? They thrust Him aside. They shoved Him aside. We don't want to obey you. Get out of the way. They thrust Him aside. Look at this. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. In their hearts, that's where the problem was. The golden calf was just a result of what was in here. There is an early church father, not quoted quite as often as Irenaeus and some of the others, but his name was Ephraim the Syrian. I love what he says about this account. He says, with Moses away, so Moses is gone, with Moses away, it gave the Israelites the opportunity to worship openly what they had been worshiping in their hearts all along. Think about that. Moses is gone. What was in the heart eventually comes out. They had been worshiping that calf long before Moses formed it. That's what he's saying there. They didn't need someone to come along and tempt them. They just produced an idol from their hearts. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the heart is an idol factory. And I would conclude that he was correct. We create these idols out of our hearts, and then we focus on trying to clean up the external, and we fall short constantly. Friend, if you're battling sin, if you're struggling with sin today, and you just continue to focus on external means and human strength to overcome it, you will never have victory. You'll never have victory in your life. You have got to go to the root and you have got to cut it out 
And you have got to cut it out through the power of Christ and His Word. You have got to fill your heart with Him and His Word. You have got to replace the sinful desires with the sanctification that brings you so much in love and so close to Christ that there's no room for those other things. Otherwise, you'll do just what Israel tried to do. You'll try to take both and make them work together. You'll try to keep Yahweh, but you'll still have your other gods, your other sins, your other enjoyments. And you can't serve two masters. You cannot. If God be, as, as uh, Elijah said, if God be God, serve Him. If Baal be, be God, serve Him. But you have got to make a decision. You have got to decide today who you will follow and who will you submit to and who will you serve. When we fall into sin, it's disobedience. When we fall into sin, we also distrust God. Again, look at our text. We saw in verse 1, they say, we don't have, know what happened to this Moses. They knew where he went. They might not know why he... I don't know that they knew specifically how many days it would be, but they knew where he had went and what he had went to do. But after 40 days, they decided, uh, we need to take this thing into our own hands. We need to do something. We need to get out of this crummy Sinai desert and get moving, right? Basically, they were saying in their distrust that God got it wrong. Or God's timing was at least long. Because their idol, one of their idols, is what I would believe is one of our biggest idols as Americans. Comfort and ease. Comfort and ease. We don't like the desert. We don't like manna. We're tired of manna. We're tired of walking in the desert, God. We are going to take matters in our own hands and get where we need to go and do what we need to do. And through that, we see that they want comfort and they want some measure of control. It's not enough to trust a sovereign God. They want to create a God that they can touch and see because they can control that God. We don't control the Lord, my friends. He is in control of all things. And faith accepts that. And faith rejoices in that. Because while we all, to a measure, make control an idol that we want to have, I would much rather rest and an all-knowing, all-powerful God's control over my life than my messed-up, finite mind to be right on decisions for me. But again, we don't always view it that way. The wilderness was uncomfortable, and that's the external thing that they could see and they were experiencing. But God was working in their hearts. He was doing something inside of them. But they didn't see that, and they were impatient towards it, and they were unbelieving towards it. And if you're in a season right now where you're struggling, I would first ask you, is it because of sin in your life that you need to repent of? Has the consequence of your sin brought you perhaps into this situation? If not, then understand that if God has led you into a wilderness, He knows what He's doing. He hasn't left you. He hasn't brought you there just so He can watch with some, uh, some pleasure as you suffer and squirm and are uncomfortable. The circumstances all around you are very difficult. But God is at work in you, forming you, shaping you, molding you 
for His glory and for your greater good. And when you come out of that valley, you'll see that. But right now in the valley, we never see it. But we can look back. Pastor Michael and I have talked about our health problems that we've had uh, over our lifetimes, mine and his. I don't think either one of us would say, that was the best time of my life when I was sick. Wish I could do it all over again. We don't say that. But we do say that in those times... We felt God's presence in a way that perhaps we didn't ever feel in any other time. And looking back on it, we see the hand of God. We see the hand of God at work. Even in His daughter. What a miraculous healing that has been provided to Julia. In that season when He first got the call and we as a church heard that news, there was angst and anxiousness. There was an uncertainty And none of us at that moment said, boy, this is great that this is happening. But as God brought her through that, and I I can only imagine the testimony now that she has to share. And as she looks back on it in her life, she's going to say that that moment in her life was pivotal in her relationship with Christ, as it was with us and perhaps as it is with you. My friends, the wilderness is uncomfortable, but God is doing something in that season. Not a moment of your life is wasted when God is in control. Every single hair on your head is numbered. He knows every detail. Don't rush to fix it yourself. Let God's plan play out. And you will see His hand in it. And number three, we fall into sin when we distort God's way. God leads the people out of Egypt so that they can worship. Over and over, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, Let my people go, that we may worship. That we may worship. God is giving Moses instructions on how Israel is to worship. But Israel wants to worship their way. And as we heard in that quote that I gave you from the Psalms, we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. R.C. Sproul says this about our text. He says, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. Practiced by men and ultimately useless for men. End quote. The key that I want you to see that he says is that uh, it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. They created a God and brought Him down to their level so that they could excuse their actions. They could excuse their actions. They could do the things that they wanted to do and still cover it under the guise of religion and calling Yahweh God, or at least one of the gods that they wanted to serve. One last thing and we'll close. Look at verses 2 and 3. Where did they get the gold? Now, granted, it was a custom in those times to put a hole in the ear and put a gold earring in if you were a slave. But when we read the account of Israel being released from Egypt, we see that God grants favor to, to Israel. And Egypt lavishes upon them gold and gifts as they leave. They become rich, material-wise at least, through Egypt. They're so ready to just get rid of these people at that point that they hand over treasures to them as they go. Who makes the cow in verse 4? 
Aaron, right? People come to him, he fashions it. And how did he do that? Think about that. Here he is out in the wilderness, and it says he makes a molten calf out of this gold that he melts down. Would you say, is it fair to assume that there was some skill involved in that? That he had that the, the word in the Hebrew literally is speaking of a mold. So they would take wood, carve it out, lay uh, a thin coating of some kind of metal in there, and then pour this mixture into it. It would, it would uh, cool down and create this image. I would say that if you asked me to go down there and, and hew out a tree and melt down some gold and make that, that I, I'd say you might have to find somebody else because I don't have that skill. This required some ability to be able to do this. Why do I mention that? Because the things that God provided, the materials that He provided from Egypt, and the talents that He had given, whether it was to Aaron or to the other people, were to be used for His glory. Those things that they received from Egypt, those things of silver and gold and and the linens and all those things, those were the items that were going to be used to build the tabernacle for worship of Yahweh but they're willing to hand them over to Aaron to create a God of their own liking. Aaron uses his abilities and his talents to create an idol rather than using, in this moment, using those talents and abilities to serve and worship the one true God. The people use their treasures and their talents on idols. Application for us. Church, where do most of our treasures go? Where do most of our treasures go? Why do most churches struggle financially? Is it because the treasures of God's people first and foremost are given to the church? Or do we spend every cent that we have on the things that bring us pleasure and joy and satisfaction outside in the world? And if anything's left, we'll try to give it to the church. Where does our treasure go? Where do our talents go? Where do we invest the gifts and the abilities that God has given to each and every one of us. Why do churches struggle so much to fill positions and get people to serve? Why? Because we want to worship God our way. We say, it's, it's my money, and it's my time, and I'll worship with it how I desire and when I desire. That is the reality of the heart that is been drawn away into idolatry. Billy Graham said, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I'll tell you where their heart is. Now, here we go. Pastors know this. We know, how, we know how a lot of people think. Here he goes. Here he goes again. Talking about that money. He's talking about money. Church is just about money. I told you. We shouldn't have come here. They just want our money. The church wants my money. You know why people get so bent out of shape when biblically, the Bible talks a lot about money. It's not just Pastor Mike or I or any other preacher. You know why people get so bent out of shape when we bring up money? Because that's one of the biggest idols that people have in their heart. And they don't want that idol touched. Don't mess with my idols. Don't mess with my golden calf. That's why it upsets people so bad. I'm not trying to guilt you trying to show you that the things that you have have been graciously given to you from God. 
the talents that you have have been graciously given to you from God. And He asks, He commands that you give and you use those things first and foremost for His glory. And we want to hold on to all of it because we want to control it. And we want to worship the way that we do. We want to. And the same thing goes with serving. Boy, I get tired of them guys. Pastor Chris and Pastor Michael are always standing up there asking us to do this and do that. And they need nursery workers and they need teachers and they need work party helpers to clean up the church. And I just wish they'd quit asking that stuff. Every time I come in, there's sign-up sheets on the table and I just get tired of looking at those things. Why? Because we want to relax be comfortable, be easy. We, we've had a busy week and we don't want to come to church for an extra whole hour. We don't want to spend a whole another hour. I just gave you two hours on Sunday morning. I came to Sunday school and I listened to Chris and Chris goes over the hour, so I gave you, really, I gave you extra. So I sure don't want to come another whole hour. That'd be three hours out of my 168 hours that God gives me every week. It's become an idol to us. To do what we want, to live how we want. And listen, I'm not saying every time the doors are open you ought to be here and you've got to serve and volunteer for everything. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is, where are you investing your treasures and your talents? Is all of it going out there and there's never anything left for in here? My friends, that's, that's idolatry. When we set up other things to the point where it takes away from the one true God and His church and His people. And His commands. Right? We preach the Word and everyone says, Amen. I, yes, I want to obey that. I want to live by that. Just like Israel said when they got the commandments and the law and the covenant. But then practically when there's an opportunity to do it, we want to make our own God and worship it the way we want to. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. And I'm going to give you one last verse. It's the very last verse in John's, in John's epistle, first epistle. Just a few little words that he closes that great letter out with. 1 John five twenty one. Little children. Who's he speaking to there? Believers or unbelievers? Believers. Little children. Keep yourselves from idols. He wouldn't give the warning if it wasn't a possibility. We need to guard our hearts against idols. There is one God. He's a jealous God. The one God of Scripture is the one alone that's worthy of worship. Is He the object of your affection? Is He the one alone that receives praise and obedience, service and dedication from you? Or are, have you, through the Spirit this morning, have you recognized that there are in fact idols in your heart? That there are things that you're struggling with, sins that you're battling, and you're trying to overcome them in your own strength? If not, my friends, we're going to sing a song of invitation. The altar is open. Pastor Michael and myself would love to pray with you. If you don't know Christ, most of all, we would love to talk to you. Because you'll never be set free from sin. You'll never be forgiven. And you'll never inherit eternal life without Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. That is the name alone, the name of Christ. So as we close, my challenge to you is this. Don't leave here and pack up your idols in your heart and take them right back out with you. Crush those idols or allow Christ to crush those idols in your life. Put them on the altar and let them be smashed to dust 
this morning. And let's live for Him and glorify Him today. Father, we thank You that You can set us free and that You are greater than any image, any God, any desire that we could ever make in our own minds and hearts. So Lord, help us to be Your people, not just in word, but in deed. Help us to live for You and glorify You in everything that we say and do. Lord, I pray for conviction in this room and online that You would allow us the opportunity to come before You as our God and lay down our idols and confess our sins so that we might be cleansed and made right before You in fellowship. Thank You, Lord, again for what You're doing here in this church. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we stand and as we sing, Pastor Michael's going to join me.